Is he all to you? Amen. Let's give the worship team, the choir, Stephen and Elaine a hand. We want to welcome you to Arden first. If you'll notice in front of you, there's a connection card, and we want to encourage you if you have any prayer requests or if you make a spiritual decision during the service to write that down so we can pray for you and celebrate with you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. In your bulletin, there is a listening guide. You can follow along with us. Today, we're going to talk about the most unlikely team. And before we get into the message on the disciples, I want to talk about a few individuals as well as teams that were unlikely and succeeded. Do we have any North Carolina State basketball fans in the house? All right, I got a few. So you guys remember the 1983 team. They were a six-seeded team and barely made it to the Sweet 16. They won their first two tourney games by a combined big total of three points. They were the big underdog with a score tied late in the national title game against Houston. Lorenzo Charles dunked a missed shot and State prevailed 54-52. to And all the State fans said, all right. <laughs> all right, for the, any boxing fans in the house... Probably mostly men. If you remember the undefeated Mike Tyson in 1990, he faced a considerable underdog by the name of Buster Douglas. And the odds were so stacked against Buster Douglas that many people didn't even place bets on the fight because there was no chance Buster Douglas was going to win. But he knocked him out in the 10th round. In fact, Douglas was so successful because of this fight he even had his own video game named after him in Sega Genesis game. All right, any football fans in the house? All right, you guys may remember the 2007 New York Giants. They were the underdogs throughout. And they had to face several hard games to get to the Super Bowl. Does anybody remember who they played in the Super Bowl? The undefeated New England Patriots, 18-0. and And guess what? Eli Manning rallied. With the help of was one of his teammates, David Tyree, and they won. They beat the undefeated juggernaut Patriots and won. All right, for you ladies who had checked out, you may remember this lady. Let's put her on the screen here. Anybody remember Billie Jean King? Remember Bobby Riggs? Some of you are upset even mentioning Bobby Riggs. He was a male chauvinist, and he could be any woman. At the time of playing Billie Jean King, he was 55 years old. He was good back in the day, but he thought he was still good. Good, You remember the living in glory days? So Billie Jean King beat him. The woman defeated the man, and all the women said. All right. So the world is full of underdogs, people that are not likely to succeed, but for, somehow they succeed. And when it comes to the Christian faith, it's no different. God calls and assembles a team a ragtag team of underdogs. We don't know everything about them, but I don't know of anyone that was in the nobility. There was no scribe or Pharisee. There was no scholar. There was ordinary fisherman, a tax collector, and a zealot. And they're all on the same team. Today we're going to talk about how God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things for him. So your big question I want to ask you today, and this is a personal question, can God really use me? Look at the person next to me and say, next to you and say, can God really use me? And answer it and say, absolutely. So if you will turn in Luke chapter 6, a little background of this passage before we jump into it. Uh, throughout Luke's gospel, for those of you just joining us or need a re- review, 
Luke shows Jesus' authority. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus' authority over Satan. He overcame Satan in temptation. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was victorious. In the same chapter, we saw Jesus' authority over demons. He's able to cast out demons because he has authority over demons. We saw Jesus' authority over sickness, how Jesus has healed so many people up to this point. We see in chapter 5 this unclean leper. And you remember lepers had to cry, unclean, unclean. And Jesus cleansed the unclean. He has authority over the unclean. Also in the same chapter, we see a person who is paralyzed. You remember we, a few weeks ago, the friends brought him to Jesus. And he not only healed him, but he said, your sins are forgiven you. So we see in Luke's gospel, Jesus has the authority over sin and over forgiveness. In chapter 6, where we're currently at, just preceding this passage we're going to look at, we see Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. He said, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. I know the rules and the interpretation. And by the way, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in verse 11 of chapter 6, before we read verse 12, the scribes and Pharisees want to kill Jesus. They sought what they could do to him. In Mark's parallel gospel, other passage, we find out that they they wanted to kill Jesus because he had authority. And they didn't like the authority because it was taken away from their authority. So that's where we pick up in verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. Forward verse 13. A lot of times we read this passage and you look at your scripture readings and it says choosing the 12 apostles. And that is part of it. But another part of the prayer that we don't talk about is Jesus was facing opposition. Strong opposition. Right after this he prays. So it is selecting the disciples but don't forget it's in the context of opposition. Pick up in verse 13. And when it was day, so Jesus had prayed all night, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Let us pray. Father, this is an exciting passage, how you chose common men, to do very uncommon things. How you got together a, a group of people that were misfits and even polar opposites. And yet because of their loyalty and allegiance to you, you use them to change the world. And we thank you, Lord, that you have power over Satan, over demons, over sickness, over uncleanness, over sin, over the Sabbath. And Lord, we thank you that we're going to see how you use ordinary people to change the world. So, Father, speak to our hearts now. And help us to be encouraged and to leave this place inspired and transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today I want to give you three principles how ordinary people just like you and just like me can change the world. The first principle is this. Jesus sought the face of God before he chose his ministry team. Look at verse 12 again. Now it came to pass in those days... That he went out to the mountain and prayed, and he continued all night in prayer to God. Did you know that this is the only place where it says Jesus prayed all night? There's a lot of places in the Bible that say Jesus prayed, and you remember Gethsemane, he prayed until he got interrupted by Judas um, when the, the, the band of soldiers came. But this is the only place where it says, in this context, Jesus prayed all night. 
Have any of you, no raise of hands, but have any of you ever prayed all night? I've thought about it. I can't remember a time where I prayed all night. I mean, think about it. Praying all night goes against your normal um, notion to sleep. It's hard enough to pray for an hour during the day. Can you imagine praying all night? Now, there, there is kind of a, a paradox here. You ever ask somebody uh, to do something, they say, I'll pray about it. And what they usually mean is I'll pray about it a minute at a time over several months. What's here, interesting here, Jesus prays a long period of time, but then he makes a decision right after that. And I think we can learn something. A lot of times people say, oh, I can't hear from God. And have you prayed about it? Yes. And sometimes what we mean is I prayed about a minute here, a minute there, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15. Jesus teaches, teaches us a principle. God will tell you something, but you've got to have an open time to pray. This is an idea of having no interruption. And it's hard to do this during the day, right? We have jobs and different stuff going on. But at night, who's going to interrupt you? So Jesus prayed all night long. And we realize in the context, this is opposition. People were seeking to plot his demise. And Jesus knew with all the opposition, I got to pray. So that's in the context. But also Jesus knew I can't do this alone. I'm going to need a team of people. Jesus knew he needed a team. And so do you and I. But notice that Jesus did not rush into action until he saw God's heart in prayer. How many of us make decisions and later regret it because we didn't pray about it? And I used to have a saying, that which begins in haste ends in haste every time, but that which is taken slowly will not end up unholy. I'll say that again. That which begins in haste ends in haste every time, but that which is taken slowly will not end up unholy. So what, what Jesus did is he took his time in prayer and he prayed. But something that mesmerizes me is Jesus prayed and then he took action. A lot of times, as I mentioned, we say, I'll pray about it. And we pray about it a minute here, a minute there. Six months later, I'm still praying about it, brother. Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily take length of time. It can be a concentrated time where Jesus prayed. He sought God until he got an answer. And a lot of people will say, Timothy, how do you hear the voice of God? Have you ever wondered that? God just doesn't speak to me. And in my research, I came across one minister who gave a really good key. And he said, God's will is not something elusive. It begins with not your question, is this God's will or is that God's will? But it begins, is your heart surrendered? And the, the length of time it takes for your heart to be completely surrendered, that's when you can ask your question. So for some of us, it may take an hour to get our heart surrendered in prayer. For some of us, much longer but once your heart is surrendered, then you can ask the question. And then the question will have an answer. Paul said it like this in Romans. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can test what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I love the fact that Jesus prayed and he sought God. If you'll notice on your listening guide, I provide five aspects of Jesus' prayer life. This is this passage and other places throughout the gospel the first one is this. Jesus' prayer life was purposeful. It was purposeful. Here we see that Jesus was praying before the selection of his apostles. We see that Jesus sought the face of God. Are you purposeful in your prayer or do you just go through the motions? I love the story in the book of Acts where they're praying for Peter to be released. And all of a sudden God releases him. And you remember the servant girl, anybody remember her name? Rhoda shows up and he's banging on the door and she's like, it looks like Peter it ta he talks like Peter, and they're like, no, it's his ghost. So they're praying for a deliverance, but then they don't believe it when God answers the prayer. 
So we need to pray with purpose, believing that God can answer. Amen. The second aspect is Jesus' prayer life was passionate. I'm thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when he's, he's kneeling down and he's praying so hard, the sweat becomes like drops of blood flowing down his face. Think about the passion. We read in James chapter 4, I believe it's verse 16 or 17, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The passion, the fervor. Jesus' prayer life was persistent. You notice he prayed all night. It wasn't just a minute or a moment, but it was a night time. So here's the thing. If you're going through a great struggle, opposition in your life, if, you're, if you need a major breakthrough, this is just for you and I both. After reading this passage, I was convicted. You may need to spend a night of prayer. You may need to devote. And yeah, you may be tired. Yeah, you may have to have the coffee pot sitting there. But there are certain moments in your life, if you need a major breakthrough, you're going to need to spend some major time in prayer. And we don't feel like it. We don't want to do it. But Jesus did it for a reason. He teaches us. Some of us may need an all-night prayer time with God to have a major breakthrough. Amen. Jesus' prayer life was consistent. Not only persistent, persevering, but he was persistent. He would often get away early while it was still dark. And if you want an effective prayer life, just like Jesus, it's not just doing it continually, but it's being in a habit of prayer. It's, it's developing good spiritual habits. It's, I've often heard it said it takes 30 days to develop a habit. For some of you, if your prayer life's out of sync, just commit to the next 30 days. I'm going to pray every day. And I'm not talking about just a little prayer over your meal. I'm talking about connecting with God. I'm talking about pouring out your heart before him. Uh, Kenneth Ridings, who was the president of Fruitland, he's now with the Lord. He used to tell the, the young preachers, I used to be one of those young preacher boys. I was 18 at Fruitland. And he said, gentlemen, how are you going to pray the Lord's Prayer once the day is already done? Give us this day our daily bread. And he would encourage us, get before God early and ask for that daily bread. Because how do you ask for the daily bread when the day's already gone? I was like, good point. So I encourage you to seek God's face early and often. Not only was it consistent, but his prayer life was powerful. It had effects and results. So here's the thing. A lot of times we think, well, I've got to pray over a long period of time and get results. Jesus shows us it's not necessarily the duration, the length. It's the, the impact of the prayer time. And he spent all night in prayer. And then you notice the next day he was ready for action. So I think in church culture, you know, it may be, let's say, Miss Elaine will ask someone, hey, would you pray about joining the choir? Well, I'll pray about it. Six months later, I'm still praying about it. You know, I think you need to spend a little more than a little whisper here, a little whisper there, but spend some concentrated time until you get an answer. And God can answer you quickly. After an all-night prayer session, he can answer. I read the story from H.B. Charles. He told of a woman in the co- of a congregation he knew. And here was her prayer life. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Every Sunday, as, as they would be having their prayers, her prayer was, Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And the kids would laugh, like, man, there she goes again. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And they would laugh at her. So finally, one day, someone asked her, why are you saying, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus? And she said, you don't understand. I live live in a very rough neighborhood. And whenever I hear gunshots going out in my neighborhood, I say, oh, Lord. Whenever the gunfight is over and the police come, I say, thank you, Jesus. Whenever my daughter goes to catch a school bus early in the morning at 7.30, I don't know what's going to happen to her at school, I say, oh, Lord. But whenever she comes home at 3 o'clock and she's safe, the Lord brought her safely, I say, thank you, Jesus. 
So when I come to church on Sunday, I say, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, combine, because I want to thank God for what he's done. Amen. That works, right? So if you want God's best for your life, start with prayer. If you want God's wisdom for your life, start with prayer. If you want God's strength for today, start with prayer. As your prayers go up, God's blessing comes down. Those who have great standing in life start with a great kneeling in prayer. So it's springtime. Have you guys noticed the birds are out? Anybody notice birds all around your house? My red car is covered with bird mass, and I'll tell you why. I, we have these blue birds in our house. I live out in the country, so there's, there's, how, there's horses and cows, and there's these bluebirds all over. Beautiful. The problem is the male bluebirds like my car because they see the reflection in the red car, and they all over. So my car needs washing. So one thing about birds, for the bird, any bird lovers in here? Okay, any, okay. You ever notice how birds can fall asleep on a branch and not fall off? You ever wonder how, that, how do they not fall off if they're asleep? Anybody ever wonder? Well, the scientists tell us it's an interesting thing in the bird's legs. And I wish I had a diagram, but their legs go kind of backwards. And whenever their knees are bent, their claws lock up. Whenever their knees extend, the claws release. So when a bird gets on a branch or a bird feed or whatever and their knees are bent, it grabs a hold of what they're on. But whenever they're ready to fly, they straighten their legs and their claws release. It's pretty interesting. So... You ever think about prayer life? Whenever you bend those knees in prayer, you hold on to God like never before. So that even in the darkest of night, you can hold on. So whenever you're ready to stand up, you can fly to new heights just like the bird. So next time you see the bird, remember, bowing those knees, locking on to what God has. Amen. You can learn a lot from birds. It's amazing. Number two. What can we learn from Jesus' ragtag group of 12 apostles? Jesus chose 12 men to be his friends, his followers, and his fellow laborers. Look at verse 13. And when it was day, this is after the all-night prayer time before God, he says he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 men whom he also named apostles. We read in Mark's parallel gospel, that Jesus chose 12 men that they could be with him, talking about friendship, and preach the gospel. So Jesus knew that he needed people to live life with. Jesus knew that God's mission was so big he couldn't do it alone. He needed a group of people. So why do we think that we can do it alone? If Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, needed a community around him, To do what God wanted him to do. How come people say, well, I don't need church. I don't need to be in a small group. Think about it. If Jesus needed it, we need it even more. The call of God is so big on your life, you can't do it alone. You're going to need a community of people around you. Because God uses people to accomplish his mission together. Of course, God could do it alone if he wanted to. But he chose to use us humans to accomplish his work. You ever heard the saying, teamwork makes the dream work? Thank you, Kira. She hears it all the time. So if you want God to accomplish his work in your life, you need people. See, the prideful mentality says, I don't need anybody. And you know what? If you have that mentality, you will never fully accomplish God's purpose for your life. God's mission is far too big to be done alone. Amen. Anybody remember the famous um, actor Jimmy Durant? 
He was one of the great entertainers. He was before my time. Some of you remember Jimmy Durant. How many of you remember him? All right. He would have, sing and do a lot of, a lot of um, on-stage appearances. So it was during a special ceremony for World War II veterans. They would have this special um, entertainment to encourage them, try to uplift their spirits. So they asked Jimmy Durant, could you give us a little time to do one of your special comedy shows or a song or whatever? And he said, you know, I'm really busy. I could probably give about five minutes, one monologue, and then I got more appointments. So they said, that's fine. We know you're busy. We know you're famous. You've got a lot going on, but five minutes will be great. So Jimmy Durant gets on stage, he does his monologue, and he gets people laughing. Five minutes, and everyone's clapping. And he stays on stage ten minutes, and he's still going. And the director of the show is like, Jimmy Durant's still there. It's been 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So finally, at the end of the show, Jimmy Durant comes backstage, and they said, I thought you only had five minutes. You stayed 30 minutes. What happened? He said, if you look on the front row, you'll find out what happened. See, on the front row, there are two World War II vets. One had lost his left arm, the other had lost his right arm, and together they were clapping. And when Jimmy Durant saw that, he said, I, I can't just give five minutes. I've got to give more time. See, the two vets knew that together they were better. They were better together. And if you want your life to be better together, you're going to need a team. Jesus had 12, and he picked this group of people to do life. Now, people ask the question, why 12? Anybody want to take a guess? Why 12? Well, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jesus was producing a new people of God. These were representative of the 12 tribes, 12 people. And we find out in Ephesians, God is producing a new humanity, a new way to be human, being in Christ. So it doesn't matter what nationality you are, if you're in Christ, you're part of the new people of God. Isn't that encouraging? So... In Luke, it tells us that these people were apostles. And you might want to write down Revelation 21.14 on your notes. Revelation 21.14. What's, what's interesting about these 12 apostles, their names are written on the cornerstones in heaven. Can you believe that? These people were so special in God's work that their names are written on the foundation stones in heaven. Revelation 21.14. So Jesus had 12 apostles. If you notice when you're listening, God, why... Why is it so significant about apostle? Jesus had many disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. Many disciples. First of all, let's talk about a disciple. In this day and time, a Jewish rabbi would recruit certain people that would be his protégés, his, his people that would follow him. And their, their goal was to follow and to listen, to follow and to listen. Jesus did something radically different. The people followed, listened, and he asked them to do a disciple is someone that does what the teacher says. Back in the day, the disciple was someone who just followed and listened. The challenge with a lot of churches is we get our discipleship wrong. We still have the mentality, if I listen to a sermon, if I follow Jesus by listening, I'm a disciple. Jesus' definition of discipleship is not just listening and following, but doing. And so many people are so confused. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm in BSF or I'm in this women's group. That's all great. But until you're doing, you can't call yourself a disciple from a biblical sense. So again, a disciple is someone who not just listens and follows, but someone who does. And everyone said, ouch. So that's the disciples. He had many disciples, but out of that group that were following him, he chose 12. And they were called what? 
apostles. Now, what is, what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows and listens and does. But an apostle is different. It's someone who's sent with authority. And what, what authority? Well, if you'll notice, it's authority to proclaim a message. And this message was of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Apostle is someone who has authority over sickness and disease. Just like Jesus cast out sickness and disease, an apostle had that supernatural healing power through God to do that. They had authority over the realm of demonic. Wouldn't it be amazing to know that you could, if someone was demon-possessed, you could just cast out the demons in the name of Jesus? That authority. Um, an apostle is someone who's sent with a purpose. What's the purpose? It's proclaim the kingdom and the gospel. There's a con- coming kingdom. And what is the kingdom? A lot of people say the kingdom of God. What is it? The kingdom of God is his rule and his reign across the universe and in our context, specifically in the hearts of men. It's when God is in charge of your life. And they were to be salt and light to a dark world. Salt and light to a dark world. So what's interesting about these 12 apostles, and I think we can learn, Jesus didn't want to just have success in ministry. He wanted to have significance. Now, what's the difference? Success is when you are successful, you're at the top of your game. Significance is when you help others elevate what God has called them to do. So let me ask you, are you going after success in life or are you going after significance? Are you trying to just reach the top that you can do, your God-given ability? Are you trying to recruit others and help them to reach their God-given ability? And really, the discipleship model is very easy. If we look at Jesus, he had 12 men that followed him for how many years? Three years, right? And then all of a sudden, they become world changers. If we take that same simple method of discipleship, if for those of you who are mature in the Lord and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, Who's, or who are you raising up? Who is your 12? Now think about it. If every church had that mentality, the mature people, I'm discipling 12 people, imagine how the churches would be different if we just go back to the old school method of discipleship. If you are called by Jesus, then you're going to reach people for Jesus and you're going to disciple them. You know, it's the great commission is not to make converts, it's to make disciples. So Jesus called them and appointed them for this. Number three, What can we learn from this ordinary group of ragtag individuals Jesus chose? Jesus called, number three, ordinary men to do extraordinary things for the kingdom. In verses 14 through 16, it lists the names of these disciples. And from what we know, and you look at your listening guide, we know what we know from the Bible, and that's accurate. The rest is church history, so there are different varying accounts. I've tried to... Uh, do some research and put what I knew, but there are some variations with some of these guys because it is through history and there are different opinions on history. But if you'll notice, Jesus picked this ordinary group. We don't know of any nobleman. There may have been one, but we don't know of anyone in that group. There was no college graduate. There was no renowned leader. There was no one famous. They were ordinary people. So think about this. If Jesus shows ordinary people, what does that tell us? Does that tell us that there's hope for you and hope for me? A lot of people say, well, I would, I would serve God, but I'm not like Stephen on the piano, or I'm not like Elaine singing, or whatever. And, you know, we all have different gifts. But you know what? God uses ordinary people to change the world. And if you feel like you're ordinary, then you're a good candidate to be on Jesus' team. If I was Jesus, I mean, just think with me a little bit. Wouldn't you go to like 
the Pharisees, the highly educated. There were 6,000 Pharisees, according to Josephus. And I would say, okay, which of these guys are not too prideful? I want to pick the educated, uh, very renowned Gamaliel or who. I mean, let's pick the 12 brilliant, humble guys and let's go there. Or for those of you who are in the business realm, what about picking the top CEOs that know leadership? They know leadership strategy and structure. I could pick these 12 guys, take them out of the business, teach them about the things of God. And couldn't they use the organizational ability? But Jesus, instead of going to the seminary or to the marketplace, he went to the fishing area. He went by the Sea of Galilee and he was hanging out in Capernaum and he was hanging out in these areas. And he saw fishermen, common fishermen. And he said, follow me. He saw a tax collector. Now, can, can we talk a little bit about these guys? Um, we know about these fishermen that they, James and John, two, two of the fishermen, some scholars say they were probably more on the wealthy side. They had boats. Um, they, they, they were more successful fishermen than Peter and his brother. So James and John probably had more um, success than Peter and his brother. So think about it like this. He took people that were potentially competitors. He took people that maybe didn't get along. I mean, think about how business, you know, how you have rivalries in business. You took two fishermen, one probably more successful than the other. Do you think there was a little uh, weird feeling there? Okay, also take the guy that was tax collector. What was his name? Matthew, right? also known as Levi. And Simon the Zealot. I mean, Simon the Zealot, you understand the Zealot's mentality. Their, their goal was to overthrow, push out, or even kill Roman influence. So here you got a guy that Simon would want to kill in the same group together. So on the political spectrum, you got Matthew, who was a conspirator with Rome. He would be on this far side over here. Let's say the far left side. And, and you got Simon the Zealot, he would be on the radical right side. And Jesus said, I want you on this side of the political spectrum, you on this side of the political spectrum, come follow me. So let's put that in today's terminology. It'd be like getting a Bernie Sanders supporter and a Donald Trump supporter and having them be the co-leaders of a small group. How do you think that would work? <laughs> so here's the thing. Jesus unites people that are diverse. So I'm okay with a church that's full of diversity. You know why? Because if we keep our focus on Jesus, he's going to bring us to him. And if there's anything that needs to be changed on my side or your side, Jesus is going to work in that. He, he doesn't catch the fish already clean. He catches the fish and cleans up the fish. And you know the thing about diversity is we can have unity in the midst of diversity if we keep our focus on Jesus. So here you have a zealot that wants to kill this guy over here. You've got two potentially... Fishing agents that probably were in competition. One was more successful than the other. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to be the one that binds you all together. I'm going to be the one that unites you together. It was ordinary people doing extraordinary things in Christ. So if you ever thought about someone, you didn't like them or get along, guess what? The church is the beautiful place where people who are so different come together because we keep our focus on Jesus. Amen. Anybody ever remember Jamie Buckingham? He was a famous pastor. He sent since be with the Lord, um, but he wrote a lot of books, um, millions and millions of copies. Something about Jamie Buckingham that was kind of cool is he was a successful pastor. He pastored a church of about two thousand people, but yet he made a lot of mistakes and he was open about 
about the mistakes. You guys want to hear some of the blunders he did? A few things. Um, he was leading a solemn service of prayer. And he was trying to get people to a moment of silence. And all of a sudden, everyone started laughing. And he's like, why are they laughing? And he realized he had just said, bow your eyes and close your heads. In this solemn moment, everyone is cracking up. And he's like, did I just say that? I did. On another occasion, he was officiating a formal wedding. And you can imagine the formal wedding where everyone's decked out in the tuxedos and the women matching colors and the flower girl. He had just come from the restroom. And as he walked up on stage, everyone was looking at him with laughter. He didn't realize he had eight foot of toilet paper stuck to his shoe. I mean, who's, who told him? He didn't know. On another occasion, um, he was doing a funeral service. And as he was trying to give the closing benediction, he put his hand on the casket and it collapsed under the flimsy stand. Not the send out that he wanted. Probably his most laughable moment was it was an Easter Sunday. You can imagine the church packed out. And he was baptizing a rather large lady, and he, he didn't realize the displacement of water. So as she went down and came up, he was wearing these trousers, and he said about 400 pounds of water filled his trousers, and he was stuck. He was in move, he could not move, and he's like, I gotta do the Easter sermon. This is the biggest Sunday of the year, what am I gonna do? So to the laughter of his congregation, he had to strip down his trousers and curl out in his underwear because he couldn't get out. So, God uses ordinary people. In a little bit, I'll share a few of my blunders. I got many. So look at this group of common people. You had at least four fishermen. Some people set up to seven fishermen, but at least four fishermen. You have a collaborator with Rome, Matthew. You had a zealot. And you have all these people that were just ordinary people doing extraordinary things in Christ. How many of you have ever used a travel agent? Anybody? Travel agent? All right. How many, of you, how many of you have ever used a tour guide? Now, what's the difference between a travel agent and a tour guide? You ever thought about it? A travel agent will sit down with you, and they'll find out where you want to go, and they'll, they'll tell you where to go, what to do, what to eat. So they'll tell you what to go, where to do. A tour guide goes with you and shows you personally. Jesus was raising up 12 people not to be travel agents telling people just what to do, but to be tour guides, to show them the way of God, to model it. That's what discipleship's all about. Not, not a uh, travel agent, you need to get saved, you need to read the Bible, da, 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 da. but it's a tour guide. Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to go with you. It's incarnational ministry, living life together, amen? So you have a lot of, you have a lot of people that want to tell you what to do. You have a lot of travel agents in your life, but you don't have many tour guides. Hold on to those tour guides that are leading you the right way. All right, in the remaining time, I want you to look at your listening guide. There's a lot of detail. I won't be able to go all of it. But I, I've done some research. A lot of this comes from Blue, Blue Letter Bible, which is a conservative um, commentary on a lot of um, articles. But let's look at the disciples. Peter, he was the son of Jonah. His name means what? Rock. And I love that about Peter, how God, Jesus spoke not to his present problem, but to his potential. You had a guy that was all over the place, had some great opportunity for character development. Instead of seeing the Peter that was going to deny him, which Jesus knows the future. I mean, he's God. But, you know, he predicted his denial. Instead of just saying, you're going to be just this flimsy, someone that is going to deny me, he said, you're going to be a rock. Aren't you? Don't you don't you love it that God doesn't just speak to your problem, he speaks to your potential? I love that. He lived in Capernaum. What was his occupation? 
fisherman. He was a spokesman for the twelve. Uh, we know that Peter denied Jesus three times, which, by the way, in Kirby, you're going to like this point. You already know this point. But Peter had three chances to pray, and he fell asleep three times. So we don't know, but sanctified speculation, Jesus knows the future. But hypothetically, if he would have prayed those three times, he could perhaps have avoided the three temptations. But he, he fell asleep. Um, but he was restored by Jesus. Jesus said, go feed my sheep. And on the day of Pentecost, he preached. And how many people got saved that first sermon? 3,000 people. According to church history, this is not in the Bible, but the church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way. So you see Peter, that was a little flighty, stuck his foot in his mouth many times, became the rock. Okay, look at Andrew. And I know Tom's son's Andrew. The name means manly. Isn't that a cool name? Every time you say Andrew, you say, man, what a man, manly. He was a fisherman, lived in Capernaum, as I mentioned, Peter's brother. He was known for bringing people to Jesus. In fact, he brought Peter to Jesus. And according to church history, and there's varying details, but he went to Ethiopia. And according to history, he led a governor's wife and brother to faith in Christ. I believe it was in Greece, and the governor did not like him. And according to this part of history, he was crucified. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were fishermen. They were known as the sons of what? The sons of thunder. Now, here's an encouraging thing. For the men and women in here who are a little fiery, a little feisty, you have a tendency to go off a little bit. Did you know that God can turn a vice into a virtue? Because think about John for a moment. You know, James and John, when they got upset at someone, they said, Let, Jesus should be cast out, praying on the fire on heaven like Elijah. And Jesus is like, hold up now, come on. They were fiery, thunderous, a temper. But you notice John, after Jesus, he spent much time with Jesus, after the Holy Spirit indwelt him, that passion, that great passion was turned into great love. And he was known as the apostle who Jesus loved. So for those who are fiery, feisty, have a temper, God can use that and turn it into something great. You can be passionate for Jesus. So oh to God that all of us who have a temper and are a little feisty, a little fiery, God will channel that and the Spirit will get a hold of that and it will turn into great passion for love. It's just passion that's redirected. Don't point at your husband. <laughs> all right. Um, they were known the sons of thunder. John wrote five books in the New Testament, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. James was the first martyr in the church who was killed under King Agrippa I. And, or excuse me, James was. And John, according to church history, we know that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, something that many of us didn't know, that one part of church history says that he survived being thrown into boiling water under Domitian. And uh, that that's pretty painful. You think about it. There is one part of church history that says he was released in eighty ninety seven and returned to Ephesus. And like I said, this is history, so we're not fully sure. But that's what some historians have said. Philip, I did not know this. His name means lover of horses. And he was from Bethsaida. He was formerly a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, that's interesting. For those of you who missed last week, we talked about the old and new, the old wineskin, the new wine. It's going to burst the old wineskin. So this is a good illustration scripture of Philip, who was used to the old way. He's following somebody else, you know, the baptism of repentance. And all of a sudden, when Jesus comes, he switches and follows Jesus. So he's a good example that we, we can evolve and grow. 
And according to a second century tradition, Ephesians tradition, he died at Heropolis. And that's um, something that they say. Another tradition says that he was crucified. So that's, you think about all the apostles that laid down their life for the gospel. Bartholomew, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, he was brought to Jesus by Philip. He was a native of Cana of Galilee. According to church history, he died and was crucified. And um, he also shared the gospel in India, according to history. Thomas, his name means the twin. Many people know him as, what, Doubting Thomas. So Thomas is the type of guy, on one side there's doubt and there's fear. On another side, he said, Let, let's go die for Jesus also, and then there's faith. It was like there was a twin belief of fear and faith. And sometimes the fear would come out, sometimes he would stand in faith. And he traveled to Persia, South India, where he founded the ancient church, Mar Toma Church. And it's been said that Thomas also was martyred and gave his life for Christ. Matthew, we know he was a tax collector. He wrote the first gospel. His name means gift of God. In his later ministries, according to church history, he preached to Ethiopia and all of Egypt and was later killed with a spear under King Hyrcanus. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was known as James the Younger. So we don't know, but he's probably one of the youngest of the disciples. Simon the Zealot, we know that he was a contributor and collaborator with Rome. And before he came to Christ, um, the Jews did not like this type of person. And we know from an apocryphal book, this is again church tradition, um, but some believe that he was martyred in Persia. Thaddeus, Judas, um, we don't know about a lot about him. I love the fact that his name means large-hearted or courageous. Pretty cool name. Okay, what about Judas Iscariot? Now, there, there is something I need to bring up here. Why did Jesus pick Judas if he knew that Judas would betray him? Why? And some of you are saying, well, he didn't know. Well, let me give you a scripture reference. You can look up John 6, 64. It says that Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. So here's a, here's a question I want to get you, to you guys. Have you ever prayed about something and really felt like this was God's will and you went for it? And it didn't turn out the way you desired. And then you're like, I can't believe I made that. I thought it was God. You know, sometimes we've got to realize God's sovereignty. He allows certain things to happen to bring about the greater good. So God knew that Judas would betray Jesus. And God allowed Jesus to pick him. And Jesus knew as well from John 6, we find out. But he did it because this was part of God's plan. To bring in salvation for the world. Because if Judas had never betrayed Jesus. How would Jesus go to the cross? So here's something encouragement. I've heard people in my life. In my ministry said you know. I, I prayed about this and it turned out horrible. It may be a job. It may be a church. Hopefully you don't feel this way about me. But we called a certain pastor and look what happened. <laughs> and uh, here's the thing. God's sovereignty works out all things. And you just got to trust him. Remember Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. But there's also personal application. You know what? There's always a Judas in your life. You may not realize it. But just because you have been betrayed doesn't mean you isolate from community. It doesn't mean you stop going to church. Jesus picked Judas knowing that he would betray him and still loved him. So for the people that have betrayed you or will betray you, still love them no matter what. Amen. So, you guys want to hear some of my miscues in ministry, don't you? 
I saved the worst for last. Um, this happened yesterday. It wasn't a big deal, but we were having a membership class. and I don't think I even told the membership class, but I was in here, and I try to preach my message before I preach it to you just to kind of run through. And I had left my keys uh, here, and I went in the breezeway. I was locked out. I couldn't get into the office. I couldn't get in here. And I'm like, oh, no, the membership class is starting here in a few minutes. So I'm on the phone calling George, Tom, all these people, JD. I can't get a hold of anyone. Finally, Tom comes right just as the first person is getting ready to come from the membership class. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Um, let's see. I was at Biltmore Church in my 20s, and I was given a fiery message. This is me as on fire 20, 20-something-year-old. And I was speaking in the college and career class at Biltmore, and I was so passionate, and I was saying, God knew you before your mama could see you on the mammogram. And a girl raised their hand and said, Timothy, what did you just say? I said, God knew you before your mama could see you on the mammogram. She said, isn't it sonogram? And I'm like, what's the difference? <laughs> oh. Four kids later, I know what a sonogram is. So. Still don't know what the other is. But my worst faux pas ever, and thank God it, it could have... It, you know, I'm not going to say any more, but it, I was launching a new church, Relate Church, and we we're at the Hilton Hotel in Biltmore Park, and we were all fired up, and um, it was a new church launching, and we we're excited, and I preached the entire sermon with my fly down. I kid you not. Let's just say the worship pastor in the front row was a little nervous, didn't know what to do, but we made it through okay. So... Or like, why are you saying all this? God can use ordinary people just like you and me. People that make mistakes. People that blow it to change the world. If you feel like you're ordinary, you're a good candidate to be on Jesus' team and to change the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you use goofy people like us sometimes. And God, you're not looking for people that have it all together perfect, but you're looking for people who have a willing heart. You're not looking for pedigree or rich and famous, though you're willing to use the rich and famous, but you're looking for people that say, you know, I don't have it all together. I'm average and ordinary, but I want to follow Jesus. So Father, right now, I lift up each person. And if you're a believer here today, and I assume most of you are, if you want to be used greatly by God, just say a prayer right where you're sitting. Say, Jesus, you know me. I make a lot of mistakes. Sometimes I may lose my temper. Sometimes I may say things I shouldn't. But just like you turn James and John, passionate zeal and even anger into love and passion for Christ, do that for me. Some of you may be like Peter and you stick your foot in your mouth and you say stuff you shouldn't. Say something like, Jesus, just like you used Peter who was all over the place and you turned him into a rock, do that to my character. So as the believers continue to pray, I want to speak to someone here today that maybe have never given your life to Jesus. And every Sunday we give you an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which is the greatest decision. If you've never prayed to receive Christ while you're sitting, just say a prayer like this, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want to do my own thing anymore. But just like the twelve left all and follow you, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you. 
I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and that you rose again the third day to new life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, give me the new life that you died for and you rose for. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, you've heard our prayers. As we respond, we pray that you would enter into this time of response. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. This time, if you'd stand for a closing song. If there is a spiritual decision you need to make, the altars are going to be open. You can come forward and pray. If you need someone to pray with you, Miss Judy will be at the front. I'll be on the other side. We're happy to pray with you. But what I want to ask you to do is ask yourself, can God use me? If you want God to use you, you can pray right where you're at. Or you can just kneel at the front and say, God, I'm ordinary. But I thank you that you take ordinary people and use them to do extraordinary things. So respond as the Lord leads.